Welcome to The Prestige, all about films, filmmaking and film theory. Each week we pick a film, we review it, we talk about it and discuss some of the thematic ideas and themes it throws up. And as always we'll end with our recommendations of further reading inspired by the actors or director involved in the film of the week. Before we get into this week's film, a quick catch up on what else we've been watching and enjoying in this last week. So Sam, what else has been gracing your screen? Right, um, I have, for the first time in a long time, been to the cinema. Um, Ooh. For, for some some reason, I've gone for quite a while. It's It's been uh, since just after Christmas since I saw anything in cinema. But we went to see the new Lego Batman movie. Okay. Which I really enjoyed. It was... It, it was just it was it was very funny if I have one criticism it would be negative criticism it would be that um there are just too many jokes and it's too funny and they need to just slow down and give us a chance to digest the what has just gone there'd be sort of it'd be a visual gag and a list of names on screen and you know the the nineteenth name is funny but you've only got time to read six of them. So yeah, that's that's my one the one negative point of this film is that it's just too good. A film being too good is is a rare occurrence. Um, yes, yeah. For, for for you and me, but uh, excellent. Yes, I haven't good. seen. Uh, my wife is also going to see it uh, this week with uh, with our daughter. They have a local sort of kids screening, and she's going to. Oh, good. But not saying it's a kids film. But my recommend, my my opinion is also kind of a a, a, a crossover film, kids and adults. Um, and that is the recent Disney release of Moana, um, telling um, sort of uh, I want to say Hawaiian myths, um, a tale of Moana and Maui, the demigod, and their mission to restore life to their island. It's wonderful, basically. It's one of the best Disney films I've seen in a long time. The songs mm. are memorable, very memorable. Uh, the Rock is perfect as, as Maui. Anyone who knows me knows my uh, my penchant for loving the rock in most things, but he's very good in this. Um, it drove my wife to tears. The the the, the, the sort of the film and the emotion of it all. So yeah, if you haven't seen it, check it out. It is one of the best in films of a long time. It's a great film. I don't think I liked it quite as much as you, but that from from the sounds of it, that's saying an awful lot. Mm. I I I really enjoyed it. I thought it was it was a great film. Yes. Um, I know it's one. Well, we we both enjoy. We both talked about it quite recently, and been to see it cinema. So yes, yeah, great film. Excellent, excellent. Um, so moving on this week. Moving on this week, guys. We are at film two of the uh, uh, current franchise, and that is Before Sunset. Nine years ago, two strangers met by chance and spent a night in Vienna that ended before sunrise. They are about to meet for the first time since. Hi. Hello. <laughs> I can't believe you're here. Well, I live here in Paris. I wanted to talk to you for so long, you know, then now... Me too. How long do we have? 20 minutes and 30 seconds? No, Let's we got, go. No, we got more than that. So Before Sunset is the 2002 follow-up to last week's film, Before Sunrise. It picks up the story nine years after the first film, in which uh, Jesse and Celine meet up um, 
nine years after the first film in Paris um, and try and pick up where they left off. Uh, I'm going to blanket warning now for spoilers from the first film and this film. Um, so the big elephant in the room is that they didn't meet up six later after the um, first film and they haven't seen each other in the nine years since the first film. Follows a very similar trajectory of, of them walking and talking and discussing things that really are discussing something else. The slight addition and the twist this time is that whereas the first one took place over the course of a whole sort of day and night, this film takes place exactly over the hour and 20 minutes in which it takes. It is a real-time film. It's not a single take. There are obviously cuts, but the, the, the action takes place exactly as you see it. There are no jumps. Um, and it's about supposedly the rekindling of whatever they had last time, their memories of what they had last time, and also just kind of what they've been up to in the interim. Sam, your thoughts on Before Sunset? Now, I love this film. Um, and as as I was thinking that, as I was watching it, I was, I, I was sort of knowing a criticism of yours would be and it's one you mentioned last week, and it's one I happen to agree with, that this could quite easily not be a film. It it could be a stage play, it could be a short story, and it would work just as well. But given that it is a film, and given that it is a, a film sequel to a previous film, I think this is just about... Even the length is brilliant. It's just an hour and 20 minutes. It's... It leaves you wanting more, as the film should, and it says things about the the composition of their relationship in the structure of the film. It's just beautiful. I I love this film, Rob. I can tell. Um, I suppose <laughs> I wasn't quite as as about it as you have been. Um, I enjoyed it. Um, actually, no. Before we move on, I do want to address last week's film. Now, I feel that in last week's film, I gave it a bit of short shift in in the um, in my review of it, um, and I was coming into it very fresh from seeing the film. A week on, I would certainly say that the first film has stuck with me and has grown in my memory and my thoughts on it. And so, it has has. I would probably have to do that again. Give it a better review than I gave it last week. That being said, I don't think this one is quite as good as the first one. Right. I think that I enjoy, once again, seeing these characters, and I'd probably say the second half is far better than the first half. I think narratively, it, they just kind of jump straight into it. And you think after nine years, for one day, it wouldn't be as so... Like just oh well, everything's fine we we'll just chat away you know like there would be some sort of more emotion going on and mm. it didn't feel like uh, uh, I can buy into a world in which you know they start off very guarded and they kind of over time open up about the hurt and all the everything the history of, of happened last time but it, didn't, it just sort of launched into this go have coffee and chat it just didn't feel didn't feel real the sort of maybe the first twenty minutes to me. Um, that being said, once again, say it's nice returning to them. It was nice to see that their lives had grown and changed. And it kind of helped that both of them had... That it didn't seem as kind of perfect and as preordained as the first film. The first film, they're both kind of people um, falling in love. 
clearly now their life has got complicated and the 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 love that rekindles during this film is a far more complex one especially given that they've got both got partners and jesse's got a kid um and the book has been written about their first night so it's more complex and i think you're right i think the hour and 20 minutes is a right kind of length um but i think sometimes it felt a little too i don't know a little too contrived in the way mm. the first one didn't i think my counter to that would be that the first what is it sort of 40 minutes of it they they're putting up facades they're um it, it, you you get the sense that they jump straight into it but they don't really jump straight into it you have the example of sex where she puts up this false story because she doesn't want to deal with it mm. and then you have the the emotions coming out later on in the film so i think it's interesting that you said they jump into it and it feels like they do but but actually, in a way, they're not jumping into it because they're putting up facades and they're just sort of it's sort of surface interactions. I understand that entirely. I, I, I agree that the, the early interactions are fake and there's a, a, a underlayer. But I suppose I didn't get any of that from their performances. Right. I got that from okay. the script going. Actually, you know, here's a reveal. But it was notable. I was watching, thinking they're just like. You know, if I don't see a friend for a year, the first 10 minutes can be a little bit, you know, it's still a little bit creaky. Yeah. Um, okay. And that's a good friend. Like for one, a, a, a girl I spent one night with, even if it was the love of my life and, and, and the, the glorious moment of my day, nine years later, there would be a moment of slight awkwardness. Um, mm. Even if they're both trying to pretend that everything's fine and the things they say tend to be lies you would there would be a visible a feeling a sort of a tangible awkwardness and it just just wasn't there um mm. and i think part of that comes from they clearly are quite easy with each other and you've got to imagine the actors have seen each other more than the nine the, the, more than zero days and nine years since the last film that they've been interacting so part of that i didn't buy but moving on from the negative i thought i want to talk up some of the positives um, in this film, mm. and I think one thing that we discussed in length last week was the the final sequence in which we flash back to the places um, that they've been. In this film, it's kind of reversed, and the opening section of the film is flashing forward to the places they're going to yes. go. Um, and I'm intrigued to know what you thought that was about and trying to do. See that that was really interesting. I noticed that, and I noticed that you get the shot of the Pure Cafe or whatever it's called, where where they they end up to have their coffee. Um, so you kind of knew where they were going before they did. I think that there's something. As I was talking about the structure right at the start, there's something in that, and there's that very long shot which may not be one entire take as you said there there are sort of places where there could be cuts but it feels like one entire camera take for about sort of five ten minutes as they're walking from Shakespeare and Co to the cafe mm -hmm. um, and then they appear at this cafe and yet you already know where they're going because you've seen this this bit at the start and it was interesting 
that you had in, in the previous film, you had sort of reflections on things that had happened to them, um, but also a sense that there was something was going to exist beyond that. And this, as you said, it's kind of reverse. It was, it's this weird way in which memory can work in reverse. There was something sort of paradoxically the the film structure was saying. It was like, is there, and and that's what they they go on to talk about. They go on to talk about fate. But is that what fate is? Is fate memory in reverse? And are they fated to go to this? Um, to this cafe, so I thought that that particular journey was very interesting. See, I I like what you're saying. I actually had to do a different read of it, and I, I'm not saying you're wrong. I hope you'll indulge my, my different read. And I'm going Go. to uh, pull up, and Sam will notice me a favourite theoretical practitioner of mine, which is Brecht. Oh God! Um, and now Sam isn't a fan of Brecht. <laughs> <laughs> We've are out of Brecht a few times now, but I think there is something Brechtian about this, and I think that. One of for those who don't know who uh, Brecht is, he's a theatre practitioner, and his ideas are about presenting something as fake. But you, you know it's a play. You're told early on that it's a play, and this is what's going to happen. And the idea that frees you up to investigate ideas in a play, rather than method acting and kind of buying into it. And there are good things about it. The reason why I think it works here is that like it's very obvious. You've seen the first film. That section of that is clearly showing you the same thing that you know having seen the first film, that's what that section is. Mm. And I think that the reason why it does that is because in this film, you know where it's going. Okay. There is there is no version of this film in which they don't end up together when they're like, the great romantic film of the first one, even if you, know, you discover they haven't been together for nine years, you know it can't end with them falling out. It's got to end with them together. Because mm. the nature of the genre, the nature of film, nature of narrative, all that kind of thing. And I think by putting it at the front and showing you this, showing you their journey that they're going to take, you are freed up a little bit from thinking about the narrative. Um, and like they do in the film, you are free to explore the nine years, which is the point of the film. Mm. It isn't about them now, it's about those nine years. And by embracing that Brechtian idea of freeing the audience from thinking about the narrative and where's this film going we are pointed and freer to deal with what's happened and where you know the, the, the idea of the memories of the first film and the first night and the idea of what's happened in the gap is what this film is trying to talk about and by doing this it frees the audience up to do those things as well and i think building on that the the idea that jesse has written a book about this the 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 first 10 minutes of this film is consciously artificially constructed it's as if like you said this this Brechtian idea of, of reminding people that this is a fiction is mm. is dialed up to to the nth degree Linklater is saying no of course this is a fiction we know this is a film look he's even written a book about it so it's like he was sort of overstating the idea that this is fiction right at the beginning in some sort of Metafilmic way to, as you said, to free up the audience by the end of the film. And I think in that same sequence, someone asks him, "What's he doing? What's his next book?" And he talks about writing a book in the space of a pop song, um, and how even though it takes place in three minutes, it's really about the memories of that of the of the character in his book, remembering the first girl he fell in love with, and all that kind of using the song as this sort of 
memory-based chain, this meme through his life, um, to take him back through memories and memories and memories. It's, it's the golden thread through these events. Mm. And I think like, that, that he's embracing that Brechtian ideal of setting up what this film's about in the first section. So we've already know this film is about memories. We know this film's about like this the whole this whole film is about the last film. Mm. Um and this whole day is about the last night and all that kind of thing. I think by getting that stuff out of the way re- the first time as you say, between that the mon- the montage and between the the Jesse's interview in in the bookshop, he's established what this film is and isn't about, um and his relation to what happened. And it's which then frees you up to enjoy the film and think about other things. Mm. And it's really economical in that sense. It's sort of it's got the meat and drink of the film over within the, that first eight minute section, and then you can say, "Okay, mm. now what, what are we looking at?" There, there is something, and I, I was, I'm thinking about, uh, just because of what I'm teaching, but I was, I was thinking about the way that Arthur Miller, and it's another. Let's let's talk more about playwrights. And every time I mention playwrights talking about this film, I go back to your idea that this shouldn't really be a film. But it's something that Arthur Miller explores in Death of Salesman is that there is there is a physical space in which a, a drama can play out, but also there is there is the idea that that memories can unfold in this place, and something that that Jesse was saying right at the beginning that memories can can unfold in the course of this pop song. So even though if it is, even though it is three minutes, it actually takes up the the whole of a book. Mm. And, and and that's what they're trying to say. I mean, and that I mean, once we move past that, what I call the structure of the film, we do get into um, what I think, and I think I, I think back on this is the ideas of the film. Is the idea of memory, the idea of remembering. Mm. Most of the conversations they have about how they remember that night and you mentioned she doesn't remember having sex with him um or at least makes out that she doesn't remember him um and i think the interesting film is interesting it sets it up in kind of a the the power level at the start is very different in that he's clearly written this book about this night so he remembers it very well and she knows exactly what he thinks of the night whereas she being the one that didn't turn up he he's in the dark as to what she thinks and what happened, all that kind of thing. And I think that they them exploring their memories of the first night and exploring whether the memories live up to reality. I think that almost anyone can kind of point to someone in their life or some event in their life where you think, you know what, that that person, that experience was perfect. That that they they are my first love, and you know, it would have been beautiful if I went out with them. And none of those memories which means have to deal with the real world. Like you have to see what your you know your childhood crush would be like when you're thirty, mm. kind of thing. And this film's about exploring what happens when those memories are made flesh. You have to embrace them and deal with them, talk about them, and how they how the memories of this event, this person, fit in with what your life has become. And I think that's that's one of the reasons that I really like this film is that it it is about memory, as you just said, but it also I'm I'm not sure how to put it, but viewing this film, you 
I'm reminded of the first film. So you're engaged in the same process, a similar process of memory making to the characters involved in the film. Mm. And this is, I can't think of very many films that engage you on such a meta filmic level in a process like that. So I'm, I'm not saying yeah. this, this is an absolutely amazing film. This is one of my favorite films ever. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm saying this is a good film and I really like what it's doing, particularly when you look at it in relation to the first film. I think I think you're right. I think so many films that we, we've touched on in this franchise series, kind of the second film and the third film are very keen to evoke the first film, the most popular film. And some do it really well um, and some do it more, I think, do it poorly. Uh, you can look at the Die Hard films and their constant referral of, of UPKA um and the idea that these throwbacks it, just, it feels like fan service and the, wor- the worst kind whereas this film seems to have almost embraced it head on and made this film about remembering the first film or in their case remembering that first night and i think it's, it's interesting that we talk about about memories um and their memories and i think as i mentioned that there's, there's this bizarre kind of diagonal shift in their in them as their portrayal of memories. As I said, at the start, he's written a book, so it's clear he remembers it very well, and she plays it cool. And I think it's very clever that the, the last bit of the film is her singing this song, um, which is clearly written about him. Mm. It's clearly written about that one night. So both of them have created something. It's not a film, but it's a book and a song about that first night, about that first film. Um, and the film seems to be playing on so many levels. It, there's the narrative, you said it's a meta-narrative, but within the narrative itself, both of them are exploring their memories of that first night. Um, she describes it as a one-night stand in her um, in her in her um, in her song. One-night stand tends to mean sex, you know. A, a nice evening of cuddling isn't a one-night stand. But that was the one thing she denied at the start of the film. Hmm. I think it's something else I was thinking of when when you were talking about that scene at the end and you're talking about oh, we know where this film is going, I thought, hang on a minute, do we? Because okay, there is there is a a heavy implication that they end up together, but at the same time, one one thing that Linklater does really cleverly is. He doesn't make it black and white. Jesse is a bit of a dick. And he doesn't... Linklater doesn't shy away from showing him like that. And for for that reason... And he also doesn't shy away... I mean, he he won't go for the black and white reading. Okay, well, they're going to stay together and that's a happy ending. Because you are left thinking about Jesse's wife and child and Celine's partner, so it, that ending is kind of open-ended a little bit. And I would agree. I think that it isn't a black and white, you no, know, they lit happily ever after, rising sunset kind of, you know, everything's perfect rom-com ending. Mm. I would completely agree with that. But I think that if the at the end of the film had gone their own ways and li- and lived separate lives again there would be zero point in this film. True. There is no point in that film. And maybe it's it's the film critic in me, it's the, it's the meta of reading of this film, but I don't think there would ever exist a version of this film in which didn't end up with them rekindling their romance. And I think it's very interesting, it's very clever and very 
intriguing proposition to start the film with him married with a kid. And it's interesting that you see the ring in his first shot of him. I think I, 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 I clocked it. Oh, something on there. And she reveals this war photographer partner. Um, so they start a position where it can't happen. But I don't think you. I don't think you can sit down and watch a film and expect anything other than they end up at the end in some kind of mm. kind of. And you know, it is a film where they don't kiss and they don't. You don't get the same physical intimacy and romance of the first film. But the last shot where they're talking and he says, "You know, you missed Trisha Plain." I know, with a big grin on face. You know, something's happened here, and I don't think that was a surprise to anyone. I think it's an interesting take, and I think the way they got there is very a journey I'm happy to go on. But I don't think I was ever in doubt about where it was going, no. and that I think comes back to my Brechtian reading of this film. I think I think also that ending is is so clever because they have this conversation through a Nina Simone song, so it's reflected through another artistic lens. You had Jesse's book at the start, and you have Celine's song, and then you have another another sort of artistic level to this so yeah this may be linked later another level in which she's saying well there is something artificial about this but also you you wonder how artificial their 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 creation of love is or how mm. artificial they, their relationship might be because it is refracted through Nina Simone well, I think it comes back because you're talking about memories of seeing Nina's main play, and I think it's I, I, I'm I suppose I'm looking forward to seeing the third film because even though they've rekindled their romance here, uh, it's it's still based on it's still based on memories that first night. Yeah, they still haven't had to deal with nine years of time together, um, and I'm I'm kind of I must say I know nothing about the third film. I'm kind of assuming it's the third film to be about them being together and dealing with that. Um, I hope it is at least. Um, so I think like they're still in this honeymoon period, and it's, it's 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 two days together over nine years, and the second day is all about the memories. So I think it's left it an interesting place to talk about a third film, mm. um, and we'll do that next week. Before that, Rob, um, recommendations. What do you have for us? So I've I've gone for two recommendations, and in my uh, my current trend of recommending my favorite films of all time. I am going to recommend uh, the 1970 film from Akira Kurosawa, Derez Karen. Um, it's a film about some slum dwellers um, in Tokyo, about the different people who live in, in the slums in and around Tokyo. It's weirdly black comedy, weirdly heartfelt. Um, I caught it late night on BBC2 many, many years ago, and I absolutely loved it. It was a critical flop um it did very badly um and uh didn't do very well when it was released but i really love it um it has that same kind of walking talking nothing really happens sort of feeling to it um and it's about some people's memories of earlier events and people that kind of thing so yeah i just wanted to take a play once again i'm recommending films that i one of my favorites of all time isn't compare right my second recommendation um, is just a straight actor to actor, so there's no real link thematically to uh, Before Sunset, and that is the 1999 film, But I'm a Cheerleader. 
if anyone knows this film, it stars uh, Natasha Leon. It plays Cla- um, Claire Duval, Michelle Williams. It's about a, a cheerleader um, who is sent away to a gender reassignment camp uh, for being a, a lesbian. Only to discover, obviously, she's now camping with a lot of other lesbians. It is surreal at times. It is visually stunning. It's very funny. Um, it is not a heart. For, it, is, it is not a running cards of boys. This is not a a serious um, take on it, apart from when it occasionally is. So this does um, star um, Julie Delvey. She has a, a, a role in it. Um, there is a, a minor one, certainly. So I just like that film. It isn't doesn't get enough sort of love. Um, but if you are any interested in LGBT cinema or even just good nineties movies. But I'm a cheerleader um, from Jimmy Babbitt in 1999. Right. There was a time of about 10 years, late 90s, early 2000s, when Claire Duval was in every single film. Mm. Good times they were. Good times. Good times. Ah, the past. Um, I have no idea what she's doing now. but uh, No. TV, I think. But yeah. Anyway, Sam, you're, you're yes. Right. <clears throat> so my first one is also an, a solely actor-related collection, and I think it's been a while since one of us mentioned Dead Poets Society, so we'll go for that from 1989. It was one of Ethan Hawke's first films, um, and yeah, it's just it, Robin Williams is brilliant, but lots of the boys are very good, including Ethan Hawke. Um, and yeah, it's just a, a lovely piece of vintage cinema. Uh, 1989. Can't say that's vintage. Oh dear. We can uh, now. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> my second one is uh, more of a thematic link. Well, it's certainly not an actor link, um, but it's it's a film about different kinds of love um, and strange explorations of that and also the the passage of time it's a beautiful film which didn't get much um much attention when it was out it's the 2009 australian animation merriam max which is billed as a comedy drama that gives you the wrong idea because well and animation gives you the wrong idea as well because it's one of the most moving films I've seen just about ever. It's an astonishing film uh, about a young Australian girl and her troubles at home with um, kleptomanic and alcoholic parents. Um, and she strikes up this relationship with a guy she's never met on the other side of the world who just happens to be... Um, on the Asperger spectrum on the autism spectrum and doesn't leave the house and it's about their relationship and there is um, as well as the kleptomanic and the alcoholic you have agoraphobic people involved and it's just as well as being profoundly moving it's an incredible study of various sorts of mental illness and Men- mentally differently abled people, so and it's a lovely little film. Excellent, excellent, brilliant. Well, guys, you can as always come find us on Reddit 
the uh, Kaiju FM subreddit. You can find us on Twitter at Pretty Podcast. You find just me at Life underscore Academic. And you can find just me at Rob Kaiju. And we'll be back here next week for Before Midnight, the last in the uh, current franchise. The Prestige is a Kaiju Industries production. Check out their other work at facebook.com forward slash Kaiju Industries. Rawr! Arg.